Okay. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the inaugural podcast on Babble for Star Trek Discovery, uh, episodes one and two, I suppose. Uh, this is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And we have a special guest, uh, John Harness. John, say hello. Look oh, and Am I supposed to be offended by that? I can't tell. Well, I know enough Klingon to know he asked if you speak Klingon, if only because I've played the Star Trek VCR board game, a Klingon challenge enough times <laughs> to recognize those opening lines. What's good? That's exactly right. Hello, everybody. I'm John, and I can speak Klingon. Yeah, so uh, we, I, my wife Kelly happened to cross John randomly while doing some of her stuff. And, um, you know, it became apparent that John knew and So we thought he'd be an interesting voice on a podcast for this show, which uh, seems to focus very heavily on Klingons and Klingon matters. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. So um, what we typically do, uh, now actually typically we podcast and we do sort of a running commentary for an episode, but we thought that kind of wasn't practical with people not necessarily having it available to them, not wanting to pay CBS for streaming, you know, like who knows, right? So we'll do more of a reaction review podcast. So our reviews typically are broken into three topic areas, uh, writing, acting, and production values, and, you know, we can talk about all manner of things, you know, within that structure. Um, I, I would just like to start by saying I was horrendously, uh, almost cripplingly apprehensive about this <laughs> show before going in. Yeah, the- I mean, what what really killed me, aside from just the um, general delays and, you know, departures, was the final nail in the coffin was CBS embargoing reviews in advance of the show, because that's something movies do yeah. when the movie is terrible. Yeah. Um, so I had a a deep pit in my stomach, and, and maybe it's because my expectations were made so low by the process. I was... I don't know if I'd go as far as pleasantly surprised. I I have a cautious optimism, a, a low fire that the embers of which still burn in my heart. I I'm gonna, I'm just going to preface my whatever other comments I make with like the general assessment of I think the bones of a good show are here, and this is real Star Trek. Um, that's something we talk about a lot here and our outrage with the Abrams movies was it was not Star Trek. None of the humanist message, none of the optimism about the future, none of the wrestling with philosophical questions, none of those things that made Star Trek what appealed to us in the first place were present in the Abrams movies. And I think even if it's somewhat, even at the worst, it was somewhat ham fisted, but it's there. This is a Star Trek show. And from that place, all of my other criticisms are I'm almost happy to criticize this show because it's like 
I'm critiquing real Star Trek again. Well, what did you get that impression? Uh, me or John? Oh, either of you, but Matt, Matt specifically, just because this is like the the core of our conversations for the past like six years of our friendship is decrying the Abrams verse for not being real Star Trek. And I, I'm just even if it's like 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 my thought watching this show, this these two episodes is I'm actually more enthused and engaged, honestly, than I was for Enterprise. I actually, I said something like that to John just a few minutes ago. I said this was like good enterprise. Um, yeah, so I agree, um, you know, with that basic premise that this somehow succeeds in a way that the Abrams movies did not. To engage that part of me that has been engaged since I was, shit, I don't know, uh, nine, ten years old, you know. I think I was six, yeah. You know, the that part of me that was uh, enraptured by Star Trek, uh, you know, that that part of me was stimulated by watching this in a way that it was not by watching the Abrams movies. So. Yeah. The other thing I need to keep reminding myself when I watched when I watched these two episodes was, um, as much as I might want it to, nothing will ever achieve again, even if it were flawless. The sense of like, I can pick any episode of Next Generation, even a bad one, and watching it on Netflix is like slipping into like your, your favorite sweater or getting under the blanket you've had since you, like there is something primally comforting about all of Star Trek The Next Generation for me that I really have to like remind myself it's not fair to expect anything else to achieve because if nothing else i'm in my 30s now and nothing could provide that primal sense of comfort and familiarity and warmth because that's not how the world works so i just have to remind myself nothing will be as good as next gen for me because nothing possibly could and i try to remind myself of that at a few points during watching these episodes john how about you where are you coming from in your star trek vocation <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's a vocation, although I have spent many an hour studying flashcards, so maybe it is. Um, so I would agree with the idea of having cautious optimism. I really did not have well-formed, this will be great or this won't be great opinions before the show. Um, I, was, I wasn't keeping track of the ins and outs of the production. I mean, I knew vaguely that it had been pushed back a bunch of times. I knew there was outrage about the Klingons, especially, right? Uh, in fact, my whole connection to this new show has really been via the sort of Klingon fandom writ large. Not only the language community, which is the part of that fandom I'm the most involved with, but the whole sort of cosplay community and the sort of con-goer community, right? So I knew there was all this outrage, and I knew that I vaguely didn't care about those opinions about uh, about the Klingons for reasons that we'll get into. And so seeing it, I... Also, was waiting for the, like, is this going to be Star Trek? Will it feel like Star Trek? And I think that there were moments when it did. I don't think it felt whatever that nebulous, inscrutable quality that we're talking about. Um, I felt that a few times. I, If I p try to put that into words, I talk about um, sort of asking questions and then having people think through different angles on that question and coming to sometimes very elegant and sometimes very inelegant answers to those questions and sort of dealing with the outcomes of how we approach them, right? And I really felt that the very first episode dealt with a lot of this. The question of how do we deal with this imminent threat? Do we not fight? Do we, you know, the, the, the dialogue going on between Georgiou, Saru, and um, Burnham 
in the first episode I thought was really like that. And I, that was when I had the sense of like, oh, yeah, this is a Star Trek show. I am watching Star Trek right now. Yeah, it, um, it felt very um, original series. I thought that a lot. Like, it felt like watching Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, almost sure. like if, as if it were a conscious callback. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that didn't occur to me at the time, but I definitely see what you see what you mean when you say it. And I think that sort of side point, I agree a lot with you, Kevin, about the sort of like we need to let the show like have room to grow. I think there's a lot of people like watching it too closely right now who are saying like, oh, it was shitty. I'm never going to watch it again. And it's like, hold on. Like the first episode of the original series to air was The Man Trap. So, like, let's all chill ourselves about uh, what might come out of a show based on its first episode. And then, like, you know, uh, what's it called? Adventure to Farpoint, Expedition to Farpoint, the Farpoint episode. Encounter at Farpoint. Encounter at Farpoint, right? (laughs) You know, is well decried as a terrible Star Trek episode, blah, 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 right? So I think I'm, I'm, well, maybe I'm saying two things at once. One, I think that generally we all just need to back up from the show and give it a little breathing room. But then two, I really drive with what you're saying of there's so much emotion in the viewer's part, especially in the diehard fans' part, that um, it can in ways never be the same. And yeah, it can harken back to these sort of feelings of what Star Trek is, but we need to remember that like, part of what will be fun about the show is seeing what Star Trek can be and where it goes and what's new and what's interesting, right? Yeah, like, like I remember watching, um, there was a d- great documentary about the early TNG seasons that's on Netflix, uh, hosted by William Shatter called Chaos on the Bridge, and one of the things I talked about was the fans, their objection was literally and completely that it didn't have Kirk and Spock. And I'm like, that's not a real objection. Um, which from, because I grew up, because TNG was the first show I watched, the one I loved the most, those objections seem the dumbest. So I'm, right. and, and I, like my objections to the Abrams verse stuff feel like, like I think a lot of people dismiss those objections because they thought it was that thing of just, oh, I just don't like anything that's not the thing I remember fondly from my childhood. When I have much more detailed objections to the Abrams verse, yes. but this, this yes. seems to, like, at its core, these were like just just that teaser. The teaser wasn't perfect. I thought the dialogue was a little stilted, but at its core, what we had were two competent officers on a mission solving a problem, and like like just like little throwaway lines, like "You've been my first officer for seven years. It's time to talk about getting your own command." I could have wept. The, the Abrams vs. movies literally handed the keys to the flagship to a third-year cadet who had just gotten bounced for an academic violation uh-huh, uh-huh, be- uh-huh. because the script said, oh, well, he has to be captain. This was two competent adults in, in the side, a total Bechdel test-passing scene, talking about someone's career in the context of a real career. Like, you've been in this ex- this second position for so long, it is now time to, like, just that alone made me go, Oh my God! Thank you. Just, just, yeah, sure. just that was enough. It's and like a real place in, in, to make one last comparison between, <laughs> not the last, but to make a comparison between the Abrams verse and this one, when Star Trek Into Darkness did that dipshit scene with the um, natives and saving them from the volcano, they played their presence and the punch. The the button on that scene was a joke. The button uh-huh, on this yeah. scene was the captain having a little ingenuity. And sure, it's a little too neat that she makes a Starfleet Chevron in the sand and the ship can see it from orbit. But it was still kind of cool. Like, I'm like, yeah, the captain yeah. was resourceful in a real crisis, 
and save the day. And they didn't do it to tell a joke. I'm like, <laughs> the, the comparison in my head was like, oh, this is what the Abrams vs. movies could have been even leaning into a more action environment. It was just like that teaser made me feel a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Can I just – there's two things I want to say. Uh, one is there's also another species of hatred for the show, uh, which is hatred of CBS slash hatred of CBS All Access. Like a lot of the comments I've read on Facebook and online are just like people railing against – the, you know that they put this on their streaming service and are demanding a fee for it, right? And you know, many, many, many people are like, "I don't care what they do, I will never ever pay for this." Which I understand where it's coming from. On the other hand, having purchased like every Star Trek Blu-ray after all, <laughs> also having purchased. Every start after having DVD. purchased the DVDs, yeah. you know, I'm like, you know, it. You do have to eventually somehow pay for things, right? And you know, it, it it's irritating. It should be on Netflix. Yes, they're fucking the American because it's people. on Netflix in every other country yes. on the earth. Yes. Okay. But setting that aside for a moment, I like you said, Kevin. I think that's kind of a, a stupid criticism. You know, it's like I don't yeah. like the delivery mode that this is being, you know, like put into, and therefore I'm against it. It's just, right. Uh, as far as, let's, let's dive into the writing. You know, you mentioned the teaser. The part of the teaser I liked more was the Klingon part. Um, I found the, you know, the, the Starfleet part, you, you were right, the dialogue seemed a little bit clunky and inorganic, and I found the the insignia thing to be cutesy uh, to the point of unbelievability. It's like if they could actually see this, you know, pattern in the sand uh, in a very windy climate, uh, it, it didn't seem like it would be that much harder to, to see, you know, the officers themselves, you know? So, and I kind of didn't like, they showed this alien, their mission wasn't really well understood uh, based on what they were saying, it was very, very quick. You know, it was very uh, lightly glossed. It's like we're saving this species from a drought or something. You know, it it was almost pointless to the point like they didn't even need to have it, right? Um, the Klingon stuff, on the other hand, did for me. And this isn't just going to be an extended Abrams bash, but the Klingons in the Abrams movies were just like this faceless menace with no modus operandi or modus vivendi, right? Like, they didn't they didn't have a reason. They didn't have a rationale. They were just evil, right? And there were, like, yeah. throwaway lines of dialogue. They've taken over this system. What system? Where? Who? Show us, you know? Why should I give a shit, right? In this, they show us the leader of this sort of sect of Klingons who's trying to push his people you know, toward this, like, racial purity uh, and cultural purity, uh, you know, ethos, right? And you had dialogue between the leader, Takuvma, and, you know, the other people with him. They're, they had a disagreement, right? There was the one guy, now that may have been later in the episode, but, you know, they had a disagreement about whether the rest of the families, the great houses, would follow, would, would you know, 
And so what I'm trying to get to, both in the teaser and in the episode as a whole, the Klingons became so much more three-dimensional. You know, not quite to the level that they were eventually developed in TNG, but it's only two episodes, right? You know, given the screen time they had, I was very invested in... Well, yeah, what... Well the Klingons yeah, and what they were doing and why they were doing it. And that, that to me, is, is a big achievement for, yeah, for a new oh, series. Sorry. I was going to say, the, the Klingons, for me, the, what, what was interesting about that teaser was the Federation's success has always been their cultural relativism, like that, that place of you are different than I am, but we are same in some ways, and I will respect our differences. Like, so how do you placate an enemy who objects to your cultural relativism, um, like the, the very means by which the Federation has achieved a lasting peace and a meaningful alliance is offensive, apparently, to this group of Klingons. That's a fun problem. How, how do you placate someone where the act of attempting to placate them is what is making them mad? That is that is a fun and difficult problem to solve. And I agree. Based purely on the teaser, I really like the, the, the setup of the Klingons thus far. This is more of a production question, and John, I'd like your your thoughts on this. I found the Klingons to be um, over-designed, both personally and in their ships. Um, I think the makeup is so heavy that it almost seems to preclude some level of individuality and certainly facial expressiveness, because the, the standard TNG Hedridge Klingon makeup was heavy, but it allowed actors like J.G. Hertzler and Robert O'Reilly a fair range of expression, and I just feel like there's so much appliance on their faces that there's no facial expression. And like I worry that that's going to hamstring me caring about individual Klingons down the road. Like, I wonder, will these Klingons produce a character like Martok with the variety in life that he infused that character with? I agree. I sure, agree sure. So, yes, please tell us what you think. So if we're uh, if we're if we're ready to talk Klingons, I'm ready to talk Klingons. I'm so ready to talk Klingons. I've been ready to talk Klingons for years. Um, <laughs> so what you've said specifically about the um, makeup and design, I well, first of all, let me back up and say that there's been so much consternation among Klingon fans and Klingon aficionados about the redesign, um, which I think is a lot of hot air, um, easily dismissible by just referencing the other times that the Klingons have gone through major um, sort of redesigns. And actually, I think that people have become so obsessed with the way the like TNG, Voyager, DS9 Klingons have looked that they've forgotten about not only the bare fact that the Klingons have gone through various permutations visually, but also that, in fact, these Klingons are in ways very successful callbacks to other versions of the Klingons. So one of the touchstones that I think people are forgetting about is the very first Klingons we see with any sort of forehead prosthesis. Who well, I, was just, I, was, I was just thinking motion picture. That, yeah, that. exactly. And a lot of people don't even remember or realize that that uh, that first scene in the motion picture is with the first Klingons, who not only are the first ones who have forehead prostheses and are wearing basically the uniforms that we'll see for the next several decades, but also it's the first time that they speak anything like Klingon. Now, there's a complicated story about how actually it was basically gibberish at the time. They got retconned into being reasonable Klingon. I can tell you all about that later. Um, but uh, they're speaking some language for the very first time, right? So... In that scene, 
um, I forget where I saw this, but in one of the sort of behind-the-scenes things, they're talking about the design crew thinking, okay, we've now got a movie budget. It's not just this like very low TV budget. How do we make the Klingons be really alien now? And they thought, well, again, I might be getting some part of this wrong, but the gist of what I'm about to tell you is right. Um, if the humans are obviously mammals, what if Klingons have a different evolutionary history? So let's decide what kind of history they have. Maybe they're crustaceans, and so that's – for better or worse, the direction they sort of went in. And so they gain these kind of exoskeleton-like um, ridges that don't aren't only on their forehead, but go all the way around their head and down the back of their spine. And you can later see, even with the sort of genesis of the wide-foreheaded kind of head-butting Klingons we know and love, that that vertebrae strip is echoed in the armor they wear. And I think even in the in the sort of spiny tips on the boots, that it it has this kind of um, crustacean-like, exoskeleton-like kind of feeling to it, right? With lots of binds, uh, um, not binds, spines and pokers, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's my sort of preamble to all that. That I think people got freaked out that their cosplay costume isn't the hot shit anymore, <laughs> you know, basically. <laughs> and I think they need to calm down about it. Um, I actually really like the Abrams redesign in term, just in terms of visuals of the Klingons. I thought that the kind of you know um, forehead piercings were like sweet as hell. Um, I thought the helmet situations were cool um, and all that. I agree. I agree with that. I didn't hate the the Abrams visual of the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they were nobodies. Like yeah, sure, they sure, didn't, sure. They didn't have a- yeah, they were just sort of generic security guards on a generic planet that they just decided to make Klingons because haha Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So anyway, so then um, about Discovery. So given that I wasn't so – that I'm into the idea that the Klingons can are permutable and, and have different faces, I think I agree with you that they're basically over-designed, if anything. Or rather, they seem so special that – what? So I guess I was confused before I saw the show. There was all this speculation, right? Is it an ancient ship? Is it a sarcophagus ship? Because obviously there's the sarcophagus that we see. Is it some sort of like sleeper ship, a generation ship? Have they time traveled from the past? All these ideas about to explain why do they look so baroque? That's the word that keeps coming to mind. Why do they look so baroque or rococo, right? Overdone. Um, but we don't really get that explained. It seems that they're just maybe slightly anachronistic, but only from, like, Takufma's father's generation. He's like, it's my father's ship, I revived it, I got it up and running, here's my crew of fanatical cultists, right? Yeah. But it seems so overwrought, and I agree with you with that. Now, I I kind of like the overwroughtness, but it didn't didn't seem to jive. And then uh, uh, Burnham spends so much time talking about the design of the torch this sort of like thing that they never really explain well it's i guess it's not the ship they're on it's like a like a space buoy of some sort you know that will do this lighting up situation which they again don't really explain very well i think they implied what's going on but they didn't really explain it um she's going on and on and on about how it's so fancy and so well designed and so overwrought right and you can barely see the thing i just have to say from a science perspective they also don't really explain the question of whether this signal travels at light speed to other star systems uh or if it's some sort of 
subspace yeah, beacon? Yeah, sure, sure. I think they said subspace wave in describing the effect of the once the light once it like went to bright white light. Someone said the word subspace. I'd have to go back and rewatch it, but I'm pretty sure someone said that. Um, I did. I did think about that. I'm like, how did they all know to be here? Shouldn't it just shouldn't it take years to get somewhere? Um, Centuries. I mean, my only concern, like, I do not like largely for the reasons you cite. I am not opposed philosophically to a redesign of the Klingons. They've been redesigned before. Um, my concern is from a purely acting standpoint. So much of what moves on a like, like for whatever we want to say about where Klingons developed from, it's got to be a human being under that makeup. No, I and, agree with you. Yeah, like like the Cardassian makeup is extremely designed, but I think it's really well designed to suit actors like Marco Lamo or Limo or um, Andrew Robinson, where as much makeup is on their face, their eyes are completely mobile under it, and it just infuses those characters with such life. And even, you know, like uh, Michael Dorn or J.G. Hertzler, Robert O'Reilly, you know, him and his bug eyes gave Galron real life. So even if they couldn't, like, furrow their brows because it was under a pound of latex, there was enough of the human face there to just infuse it with the markers that give me another human the ability to like invest and i'm just worried that their faces move so little that it's going to be hard for me to differentiate them let alone care about them yes and i agree with you uh on that i think that everything i was saying was i keep saying the word preamble but i think preamble to me getting to that that yes i think that they're I'm excited that they're redesigned. I kind of like the sort of H.R. Geiger-esque designs. I think they're a little over the top, and that's not really explained well. But I agree with you that the, the fo- there's so much forehead and sort of nose prosthesis that you can't that, – that we'll see how it goes. Now, I think Takuvma was the worst offender in that sense, and he's now dead. Spoiler alert. Um, maybe he'll – surely he'll come back in flashbacks as they explain his cultish behavior. But he's dead, right? Um and I think that the Klingon we're going to see the most of is probably going to be Laurel, uh, maybe Vok, I guess. Vok. Um, and I'd notice that Laurel's makeup seems to have a lot more movability on it. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. That just seemed to my, be my impression. That also, is the female uh, yeah. who is in the, the holograms, right? Yeah. Uh, no. Um, Laurel, is, Laurel is, the, is one of the Klingons hanging out next to Takuvma. Oh. But not the albino one. But not the weirdly albino one, yes. Uh, All right, well, maybe we should move on to other writing aspects before we uh, tackle. Well, I had one more thing to say about Klingon when it came to that, the Klingon language, is that um, I wonder if I didn't have such a problem with telling them apart, one, because I've been paying attention to the sort of updates about the Klingon actors specifically, so I know that Laurel is a character who's going to be there a lot because they've talked about her a lot and things like that, so... I, I had maybe had a little easier time keeping them straight, but also because, you know, when I hear the Klingon there, now don't get me wrong, I couldn't understand it exactly as it was being spoken, but that's a function of there being a lot of new vocabulary words that I don't know, right? Um, and so I could be, I could understand like all the grammar bits and how they fit together and the structure of the sentence. I just didn't know the new vocabulary, so I couldn't have translated it as I listened to it. Um, but that being said, I could really hear the distinctness in their voices 
which might be hard for someone who can't understand Klingon. Um, they Let me just say that they're doing a spectacular job of speaking Klingon compared to any other person who's ever been speaking Klingon on, on stage, except for maybe um, uh, whatever his name, Christopher Lloyd, um, who does a great job, but speaks actually very little Klingon. So for someone speaking a lot of Klingon, they're doing a very good job. Hmm. Takuvma does the worst at this. Um, maybe because of the prosthetic, but I think I've heard from a few people who know from behind the scenes that um, he tried really hard but just wasn't the greatest at pronouncing things. But he does much better than many other people have done. Um, and he and they made like consistent errors or what might be – this isn't confirmed yet, but what we have been hinted at being like dialectual differences. In the, in I, the I will say I, I did hear – like listening to the Klingon, I did catch several times where there was consistency – um, like when he's uh, listing the names of different species, there's like a suffix that gets repeated and I'm like, or some word that when it was repeated again and again, close together, my ear caught the same fragment of Klingon. So I appreciate, I'm an enormous nerd. I love detail work. So I appreciated the depth that was yeah. applied to the Klingon. I'm, I'm hoping it pays dividends in like, th- th- there was something, um, JG Hertzler said in an interview that I've come back to several times when we do reviews for, for, uh, especially in DS nine was that all of the main, um, Klingon actors, um, Hertzler, the Dura sisters, um, Galron, they, they all had Shakespearean backgrounds because the Kling and which made sense because the, the Klingons as portrayed in TNG and DS nine, were very Shakespearean. They were they were practically doing Hamlet or Lear every time they were on screen, and that made it very easy for me to connect to them. Like there was a there was this broad theatricality to all of their machinations that was, despite its alienness, still identifiable. So I appreciate all of this detail work, and like I said, I don't mind the redesign. I'm just hoping it the payoff is a species, and I and I do like what I, Matt you said this too. Like the fact that they had internal disagreements from the beginning about a course of action instantly elevates them as a people. Like I'm like, oh great, there are actual sentient beings who have disagreements about actions like that. That one uh, one of the houses apparently didn't agree with Takuvma's plan and turns off his Star Wars hologram, and it's like, oh great, uh-huh. so now uh-huh. now we have the war with the Klingons, but one of the houses isn't on board. That like All of that presages some interesting conflicts, because conflicts within conflicts create interesting narrative drama. So the, it, it kind of goes back to what I said at the start. The, the nuts and bolts are there. The core of a really good story is there. And I am more enthused and more willing to go along with it, to let it get get that space to develop, than I have been in quite some time. Right, right, right. Let's Whether or not about... Kufma can say his very well, which he can't, by the way. <laughs> Let's talk about the core themes, um, you know, because I think it seems like all of us agree that one of the um, key aspects of Star Trek DNA uh, is that major themes are dramatized. Uh, you know, they're, they're given to us, they're explored from various angles, a conclusion may or may not be reached. You know, sometimes the, the show or the movie comes down very strongly on one, one part, sometimes the show or movie does not, right? So what are some of the big themes here? It seems like um, the idea of... Uh, Preemptive strike versus diplomacy, which of course is a very, very cogent theme right now. 
uh, in the unfortunate uh, worst of all possible worlds that we're living in. Uh Um, And they have different attitudes about it. Uh, Are we irritated by the fact that her name is Michael? Not at all. I'm not irritated that it is. I'm just kind of irritated that they like just added one more thing. That it, it, I feel like it's just going to trip people up, you know. Um, I've decided it's going to end up being one of two things: either her given name is Michaela and she goes by Michael for some reason, or like names like Ever- Evelyn, Beverly, Stacy. There's there is a drift. Uh, Madison, there's a drift of men's names that eventually become um, unisex names. It's just a thing. I have no trouble. Like, I believe there's an actress, Michael, I'm blanking on her last name, but she was a it's like soap opera actress in the 80s, there's and I remember she did a um, columnist called Michael Sneed. And yeah, like th- just, that, that didn't catch my, my that didn't catch it, it like it caught my ear, but I assume either her full name is Michaela or she is just one of the handful of women I've encountered in the world whose given name is Michael. It's like it, it was like choice. Anyway, yeah. setting, setting that aside, um, I found her, uh, especially where it ended, but I found her character story interesting. Um, you know, so multiculturalism seems to be another major theme. How can people adjust when they're uh, being raised in cultures that are radically different from their birth culture? Uh, you know, is there a tension? Now, that's a theme that's been talked about to some degree before, but not in this way. I mean, she's... I, I liked all of it. The only part that really caught my ear as a bit of a clunker... Um, was when the quiz is asking her essentially about the massacre where we're to presume her parents were killed and Sarek seems dismissive of her inability to engage that. Like my day job, um, so John, you don't know this, but and I don't believe the internet would remember it. My day job is is a lawyer for victims of domestic violence. So I have a, a fairly long experience with people who've been through some kind of trauma and it's one of those things where it's it's one thing to dismiss humans' emotion as illogical or extraneous, but trauma is a physical thing. Like, it, the experience of trauma physically alters your brain and how you remember things and how you process them. So I found Sarek's dismissing of her inability to casually answer trivia questions about her parents' death to be shocking. Like, like almost a piece of, like, verging on character assassination. There's like, I get it. You think humans are emotional, but you should understand that a child would process parents' death. Like, it would, like, the, the physical storage medium of those memories is a landmine for her psycho-emotional development. It's almost like dereliction of duty as her caretaker to even allow her to be asked that question. Well, and let's just Uh, say that he is already married to and has impregnated a human female um yeah so he should have some relatively deep understanding of the way human emotions just work and not be like yeah so fuck that 
you know, like, I don't care about right. human emotions. It's, it's not just that humans are more emotional than Vulcans. Human and Vulcan brains are different. Maybe, and, and maybe that's a fun insight that Vulcans would process tragedy in a different way, that their brains store, like, the, the core of a traumatic memory, the core of post-traumatic stress disorder is that, um, the person who's having a post-traumatic stress disorder episode is not just recalling the, the experience, they're literally reliving it. Their brains in that moment cannot differentiate between memory and experience. It's what makes it so disabling. So, like, from a purely physical standpoint, let alone some more tenuous emotional one, when she was exposed to an image of the destruction of her home, her body reacted as if it were happening in that moment. So you're, it, it was just like, it, it, like we, maybe it would have flown better in the original series in the sixties before these things were better understood. But nowadays it's just like the, the, the reason the Vietnam vet jumps behind the couch when a car backfires is because his body is telling him you literally just heard a literal gun go off. And I just, it, it was the one thing. And maybe, and again, it's probably because of the work I do that my, it just grabbed my ear in this really annoying way. <laughs> so what you're telling me is that, Vulcan logic is not the end of all meaning or reasonableness, and <laughs> and that uh, they are in fact affected by their own cultural history and their own backgrounds and their own understandings, and maybe that uh, the Star Trek writers don't have the insight that you have or the background that you have given this, given your background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, and maybe maybe it's because it was also because you, as Matt points out, Sarek has a human wife. He has to have some basic affinity or understanding of humans or why bother? And maybe that bothers me too. It's like, why Sarek? I I forget what review I read because I've read several reviews in the past, you know, 36 hours about this. Um, They call it the small universe problem. There's this thing we do, especially with the prequels where everyone knows everyone because we think it makes us feel better as fans. It's like, ooh, they're doing this. It's like, no, I'm completely fine with this woman having a, assuming there are billions of Vulcans, any one of them could have been her war, yeah. her caretaker. It just like, it seems like such an, un, such an extraneous detail. Yeah. Uh, I, I've always found that kind of storytelling choice to be cheap and lazy. Uh, if there's not a compelling reason to make it Sarek, you know, like unless this is going to inform our understanding of why he was such a douche to Spock, there's no fucking point to it being. You know. All right. Well, it, it, I mean, maybe it will. I mean, there's what six. Um, there's a potential of what twelve seasons ahead of us for all that stuff to happen. Um, I think that we're looking at what a combined less than two minutes of Sarek on stage. <laughs> on stage, on, on screen or whatever. So I find it interesting that um, everybody who approaches Star Trek puts emphasis on what makes sense and isn't acceptable because of like production reasons and what may, has to make sense in a sort of internal logic sort of sense. And I, everybody does it. I do it. Don't get me wrong. But it, it it's so interesting to me that p- different people, all three of us, I think, have different sort of um, lines that we draw. So, for example, you're, you're you're sort of here, kind of spinning this tale of, well, it doesn't make any sense that it would need to be Sarek. It's lazy. But on the other hand, for me, I'm like, uh, they wanted to put someone people someone would recognize in there. They wanted to have a connection in there. 
Spock has a lot of social capital. If you even lie and say that Michael Burnham is Spock's sister, it gives you a reason to make a BuzzFeed article. Right, so is that lazy writing or is it effective marketing and effective sort of fan service? And I think yeah, that, but then, I but think then you get just like snake eating its own. That's what I was just saying. Like I think you get into this like snake eating its own tail, where it's like, especially for Trekkies in particular, and I'm happy to make this generalization, the kind of fan service of mere recognition, I think probably pisses off the average Trekkie. Um, it tends like it, it's it, it's not enough to just be like, oh, here's a name you'll recognize because we're we're exactly the people. Who would be like, well, what's, what's the real narrative quality here? Like, like, like we literally just did. Like, we're exactly the, the people fuck who. What are you talking about? Trekkies are like, the people think, who go to conventions and get, and, and stand for hours in line to get their picture taken next to a, a minor actress in one episode. Trekkies are to be, ob- obsessed to, about minor details and about their in infinite recapitulation and rehashing them over and over but and over I, again. Trekkies have this, but I think the reputation for being obsessed with canon. So yeah, like, but when you want to reintroduce them, right like when you want to reintroduce them, I think they have to have some internal justification. Otherwise they do feel like, like how to like, I'll put it this way. Sarek showing up on next gen actually made sense because they told a more interesting story than oh hey remember Sarah here he is they they managed to tell a tale about aging and about Picard and like about you know like they 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 really they and you are correct in saying we've seen very little of Sarah on screen and maybe they'll do something more interesting with it but the few minutes we got just it felt like the story would not have been different thus far if his name were Schmerick. yeah. So until there is a reason that he has to be Sarek and not Schmerek, I remain skeptical about his inclusion. Kevin, I just want to, you know, you mentioned TNG, and I think that's an interesting comparison to make. TNG under Roddenberry uh, was almost bent over backwards to a ridiculous degree to disassociate itself with prior characters prior even alien species like except for naked now but go sure you know they recapitulated an entire script but um you know roddenberry's sort of dictate was we're not going to have a vulcan on the bridge you know we're not going to do this not going to do that we're not going to you know have a bunch of guests i mean you know they, they they wouldn't even call him mccoy when they had deforest kelly so john you know you mentioned sort of real world reasons for doing things right and so putting deforest kelly on encounter at farpoint had a real world reason and it's exactly the reason you say it's like you know well a fan wants to see that's like oh here i love right and that makes me happy right and that's true but the stories you know the scripts went to almost you know comical length to avoid uh you know associating like they they reconfigured the timeline like they redubbed the word constitution into constellation because they thought calling it a constitution class ship would be you know like cheap and and too close right they they wanted to make tng a thing and i i just think i think that was wise. i don't think everything roddenberry did was wise (laughs) you know code of honor looking at 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, but and and certainly his whole like we shouldn't have conflict on the bridge, you know, or conflict on the ship was not a wise, thing, but it was very wise to try to make TNG its own thing first. And then, you know, three, four seasons in, you can start referencing things again, right? Whereas, you know, I, I think I'm kind of on Kevin's side here. It's like, why make it Sarek when you inherit a lot of baggage, but it doesn't seem like you're actually doing much? Also, can I make a, like, jumping from writing to acting for a second? The actor did okay. It's not like he did bad. But am I, and maybe it's just because Mark Lennard played the character for so long in so many instances. It's impossible to not make that comparison. And I found it lacking. Like there, like we, we, we've discussed Mark Lennard's performance as Sarek is like the Ur Vulcan because Spock was the, the half, the hybrid human and his conflict was his defining trait. So when Sarek first shows up in Journey to Babel, that's like the first full Vulcan who is very Vulcan that we see. And like that performance existed over like several, you know, an episode and a few movies and the next gen appearance and a couple of next gen appearances. And it's just like, I couldn't like, and, and this is like what you say, the baggage is I'm watching this guy expecting to feel the like, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Just this like effortless gravitas that Mark Lennard infused Sarek with. And of course, when we see Mark Lennard as Sarek, it is decades later. So maybe that, that would be part of it. But it's like, I just kept waiting to feel that same sense of like the world's stillest, deepest pool that I got from Mark Lennard's performance as Sarek from this guy. And I never got it. And maybe I'm not supposed to because it's a, it's the character different point in his life and a different set of interactions and it is a different actor. But by calling him Sarek, you invite those comparisons. You, you're, you're forcing me to compare him to the other men, the other man who has played Sarek. And it just seems like, and again, there's what, 10, 11 episodes left in the season. Maybe at some point they'll justify that, but it just seems like if all you did was remind me, you know who that is. I know you know who that is. You're the intellectual property holder for this franchise. Until you do something more with it, I'm going to go, mm. <laughs> um, But I want to talk about uh, Michael Burnham's you know, character arc. Uh, I thought where it ended up was really cool. I thought they sort of established her sort of conflicting um, impulses really well. And then they dramatize those conflicting impulses with this, you know, crisis with the, the Klingons uh, facing. Um, and her choices were interesting. Uh, you know, when she did the Vulcan neck pinch on Captain Georgiou, you know, and tried to take over the ship. Like, it, it was an interesting moment. And I was invested. Like, I really want to find out what happens. You know, will she yeah. be successful? Will she fail? And where they ended the second episode, you know, with her being sort of defrocked and thrown out and put in jail. Uh, it's a little bit similar to like a, a Tom Paris uh, story arc, but of well, course, see, I, I was thinking Edson Rowe. Oh, sure. Uh, but she's a commander. Uh, you know, she, she was close to being a captain. So it's a, it's a further fall. Um, yeah. And the, the, the previews of the upcoming episodes make it seem, really interesting and really cool so uh 
I thought the protagonist character arc was really successful in these first two episodes. Yeah, th- th- there were two moments that really got me. Um, one was when, when she neck pinches uh, Captain Georgiou and tries to take over. The scene that came to mind um, was the episode of Voyager when Tuvok, it's when they find that space transporter that might send them home with those annoying French-sounding people. Yeah. And J- Janeway tells Tuvok, you can justify anything with logic, that's its power and its flaw. That it, it was such a great scene for me because I'm like, this feels of a piece with other failures of Vulcan logic. Um, that it was like you took a path that might not be justifiable because your logic made this kind of ruthless determination and said, this is what I'm going to do without hesitation. I really like that scene. And then um, after she, after Captain Georgia was killed and she's beamed back, that was really good grief acting. Really good grief is hard to portray. It's like that that like silent scream she was doing was really good and and really affecting. Like I'm like and particularly because she she did a good job of portraying that kind of Vulcan reserve that assumably she picked up by being raised by Vulcans. Um, to the point that I almost asked myself, are they cheating? Like, like where it's like we we want a character who can portray Vulcanness when we want her to, but who can have human emotional reactions when we want her to, without having to do the same uh, narrative hoop jumping that we would have to for like Spock or Tuvok or T'Pol. That being said, even as I had that question in my mind, I was invested and I did believe all of her emotional reactions because I mean, when you get down to it, all of her reactions are informed by the traumatic experience in her childhood. She is, if not overreacting, she is she is urgently reacting because she doesn't want a repeat of what she experienced as a child, and that kind of informs all of the things she did um, in taking over uh, the Shenzhou. And I liked that. That like that, that's understandable. Like that's relatable. And then again, when when the captain dies, I'm like, that's really good. The last time I got that choked up was like. Um, in Hamilton when Hamilton's son gets killed. I'm like, I'm, I'm right here for that. And I thought that was, that was really well, like any time a science fiction show can find the relatable human emotional core. I kind of like, well, that's, that's your job. Your, your job is to use this fantastic setting to find some piece of intellectual or emotional honesty. So like when you can portray those things in these insane settings, but in a way that's completely relatable, I'm like, well done guys. You, you, you really did your job there. Now, Kevin, you said science fiction, and I want to put a question out to both of you. Uh, now, Kevin knows that this is one of my, um, you know, animating principles when it comes to Trek, and Kevin knows exactly the question I'm going to ask. Uh, I that's, do. Well, you ask it for me, Kevin. You know the question, right? Was there actual science fiction here? Yes, that's the question. Uh, you know, how much science fiction was really done here versus an action story versus a character story? Uh, you know, were there big ideas, big sci-fi ideas? I do think, and my answer is that they were somewhat lacking. You know, uh, you know, there, of course, this <laughs> raises the question of what science fiction is, and you know, like I would say, science fiction is investigating the effects that a technology. Uh, or a new way of living would have on humanity, um, you know, and I, I wasn't getting that so much. 
Um, I think we got in the neighborhood of it with the Klingon stuff. Like we asked, what if you encountered a people whose fundamental worldview was completely different than yours and not as a piece of propaganda? Like, you know, everyone thinks the enemy has an irreconcilable worldview and time and time again through human history, that's been proved to be a bit of fluff. So if we posit there is an alien out there that literally views you and the world differently than you do, how do you navigate that? So I'm, and, and I've, and Matt, I'm sure can predict my response here is that much of what I said throughout DS9 was that I think you can kind of borrow the science fiction bona fides of the Star Trek universe to tell a more purely action or political story and still be in that realm and really have some fun kind of stretching and perforating the universe. And I'm happy to give them, I mean, the, the problem is like next gen's premiere was explicitly like beat you over the head science fiction because it was centered around, you know, what is life? What is consciousness? What is humanity responsible for? Like, they, they, they literally asked the big questions and that they put the questions in the character's mouth and had them say them out loud for the camera. Yeah. Um, and it ended with discovering a new form of life. You don't get more science fiction than that. Other Star Trek, I think, can be less explicitly asking the big questions literally. Well, I, I think so- it's exploring the big questions thematically <laughs> briefly you know i i do think that they told sort of an allegory it seemed like they were tell me if you you agree with me on this it seemed like they were very gingerly with a few little shades of lines here and there uh reaching for an allegory uh an analogy between the klingons as portrayed in this story and sort of uh islamic terrorism in the world today um, they called it a klingon terror attack uh, there, there was the admiral used that phrase, and it seems like the Klingon ideology is very uh, similar to this sort of like uh, you know Western world versus you know some more fundamental vision, uh, you know, and the, what the Western world is corrupt and they're trying to you know sully us and, and make us less of what we are, um, you know. So I'll grant you that there's probably an allegorical element going on and some of the best star trek is more allegorical than it is science fictional and so that's fine uh john what say you well so i think i was waiting for your operative definition of sci-fi and then you gave one which is great but in a way your operative definition doesn't make any sense to me because you sort of in two phrases said very different things. You said sci-fi is about exploring the use of a new technology, which is a very narrow definition. And then you said sci-fi is about, oh, I'm going to misquote exactly what you said, but something like uh, exploring a new world or a new something, right? Oh, no, how, which is a, how that technology changes. No, that's not what you said. You didn't say how that technology changes anything. You said, or uh, uh, whatever, I can't remember how the, or at least this is how I'm interpreting what you said, right? Um, and I think that if if the kind of as you were just touching on, if uh, if the definition of sci-fi is that it has to deal with sort of the ramifications of a technology, then like no, there wasn't a whole lot of science fiction in here. Although that's true of like as you mentioned, tons of not only sci-fi, you know, quote unquote, but also tons of Star Trek. You know, is the black on one side, white on the other side? Story is that a sci-fi story according to the changes in technology? 
Well, of course it's not, not according to that. But what I was interpreting your second phrase to mean, which is does it have to do with some sort of new um, kind of life or, uh, or um, uh, a new lens on life, a new sort of reality, then yeah, I think of course it does. And then just a second ago you said, well, it's either allegory or it's star- uh, sci-fi. And that to me is just a non-starter because I think that these things are so intertwined. You know, one of the touchstones of me for, you know, hard science fiction, I know that's a debatable term, but for hard science fiction is Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke, Mm -hmm. which is of course a giant allegory, (laughs) you know, um, at the same time that it's about gravity. And there's a 20, I'm not claiming you can't do both. I'm just claiming that Star Trek sometimes only does one or the other. Of course you can have allegorical science fiction that is also about, New technologies that change, you know, the way humans do things and sure. they live with each other. But sometimes. Well, and, and one of the points uh, that I made about Deep Space Nine when we were going through it was, um, I think a lot of what you know, t- uh, the original series and Next Gen did very well was portraying this happy, stable, prosperous world built on new technology, essentially, you know, the replicators solving economic scarcity uh, to the fear of libertarians everywhere. Yeah, and I'm, um, I'm willing to say that. But I think DS9 Christian. and maybe this show will explore the limits of that. Because it's, it's like one of my favorite lines in all of Star Trek is Quark telling Nog, humans are very nice people as long as their bellies are full and their hollow suites are working. Um, because I think that that's the key question of Roddenberry's universe is, are we better people who have better technology, or are we better people because we have better technology? So I think the the underlying technology of Star Trek is still visibly there. There's phasers, there's communicators, there's transporters, there's faster than light travel, and that's created a stable, prosperous, multicultural world that now we get to stress. I I, I think that is an entire like, and I've said I said it many times during our DS9 reviews. I think putting the Federation ideal through a stress test. Is a, is a science fiction story because the Federation itself is a science fiction abstraction. Okay. Sure. Now I would say to that that um, I don't. By what you just said, I don't think there was very much sci-fi in there at all because I think that yeah we can, we're assuming all this all this background information watching it, but um, for example. Could the story that we know from these from that show be entirely tellable if they were naval vessels on the Pacific Ocean? Would you need to change anything about them? That's other that, than that's you know the starships about. coming from in or out. That's that's the question I often. Ah, uh, sorry, I couldn't understand what you said. Um, you know, I, I've I've said an iteration of that exact phrase many, many times. Could this be told with stagecoaches? Could this be told in the Old West? Could this be told? Right, right, you know? right. And if the answer is yes, then it sort of just raises a flag for me. It's like, why is this a Star Trek story? You know, uh-huh. uh, why are they telling it here? Now, it could be that the, the underlying story is so strong that, well, you were just going to tell a story like this anyway, even if it could be a Western story. You know, sure. the story is so strong, the idea is so strong. But, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you moved the goalpost a little bit. A minute ago you were asking if it's sci-fi, now you're saying if it's Star Trek. And I think that Star Trek often is – either either Star Trek is doing a lot of defining the bounds of what sci-fi is, or Star Trek is often not sci-fi, right? Well, no, so if look, the question – Let me just say, you know, Kevin and I have had this conversation for a long time, so I think he knows what I'm getting at. 
Star Trek can be good sci-fi or it can be good action. Star Trek is sort of a broader category, but the ones that tickle me the most, the ones that you know do it for me the most, are the ones that really nail, a, you know, a sci-fi question, you know, uh, as opposed to ones that are just good action yarns or good comedy mm. stories. There you go. So did for you? Well, did I, this hit that nail? Did this hit that nail for you? This was a good uh, action story. It had interesting questions. Um, of that that could have been told in other milieus, uh, you know, but it, it was well done enough that I enjoyed it, and I'm willing to suspend my thirst for harder sci-fi elements in the hope that they'll, you know, show up in the next ten or right. And and you know, Matt Matt knows I'll say this. Um, the stories I tend to respond the most to are the ones that hit the most resonant and honest um, character or emotional notes. And that was there for me. Um, like, I love sci-fi. I've watched a lot of it. I've read a lot of it. Um, but the thing that drew me to Star Trek and going back to my love of TNG, what well, the thing that made me love Next Generation, like, just so, so much, was watching these, like, talented, competent, nice people all work together and like trust each other and get along and like handle conflict like grownups because I was a lonely fat gay kid. So I didn't have a lot of friends and like watching this group of friends gallivant about the universe while being nice to each other was like water in the desert to me. So like the, the thing that draws me in about Star Trek story, even more than the sci-fi, honestly, is like watching these like decent people, be nice to each other. Uh -huh. um, like, like that is the thing that, like, like even the even the other alien species that have different sets of values. Like, I the the, the TNG Ron Moore Viking Klingons are among my favorite thing about Star Trek. Like, um, I can watch Redemption any day of the week. Like when the Dura sisters invite Picard for tea, that is like my favorite five minutes of that season. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but because all the emotional notes are there, like once you accept, I understand what each of these people want. I understand what each of them will do to get it. And you've put them all in the blender to see what happens. And that's fun for me to watch. That's, that's where I, that's where I like hook to uh -huh. something. Like I respond more to Star Trek than I do to, you know, like, I've read Clark, I've read Asimov, but Star Trek's what I respond the most to because Isaac Asimov, bless his heart, could not write, you know, complex emotional stories. Oh, well, we, you and I should have another conversation about uh, <laughs> Cars C. Clark, because I agree with you, but that's because I think he's writing epic poetry and not a sci-fi novel. But the way I think Star Trek is like, would I want to work there? And, the, like, and I'll say it, for Discovery, so far... Yes. Uh, like Ooh. If, Ooh, if, if that's like a that's like an endorsement right there. Do you see that? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like like I I wouldn't want to live in the Abrams universe. I would be fine. I wouldn't be doing cartwheels, but I'd be fine living in the Enterprise universe. I'd be fine in U Space Nine. I'd be fine in Voyager. I'd be fine in the original series. I would have a spontaneous orgasm living in next gen. Like if I were in tapestry and had Picard's life as like the tedious science bureaucrat, I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Q, you can go. I'm fine. Um, but I, I was surprised by how much I cared about these people. Um, the other character, what was his name? Sour? Sar? Sa Saru. 
Saru. I can go either way with. I think I need more data on Saru. Um, I, I if care. nothing else, I was thrilled that that dipshit line about my species evolved to a sense to sense death was not meant to be taken literally. Oh god, I'm I'm so on the same page with you. When I heard that in a trailer, I was like, oh no, oh like, no, a, oh no. But then when it turned out, it's like my species is prey. It's it's like if there were a gazelle on the bridge yeah, of the yeah, ship yeah, who yeah, said, yeah. no, no, got to get the galloping. You and like me a hundred percent. I had exactly the same reaction. Um, like, oh, thank God it was so far. It was a meta, like I almost like I, I've been staying in a hotel for the last few days for a work conference. So if I sound crappy, it's because I'm on my cell phone. But I almost started knocking on other people's doors, being like, "It was a metaphor," just to like tell them that I was so happy. Yes, it was just yes, yes. thank God, the dumbest thing in that trailer turned out to not. Maybe that was it. The dumbest thing in the trailer turned out to not be dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A pretty decent line. Yeah. yeah. Um. In the interest of time, maybe we should move on uh, to acting. So, Sonequa Martin-Green. Uh, initially, was... well, let Wait, me just sorry. say, in my notes, in the first, like, 20 or 30 minutes, I was like, man, she's, like, really wooden and strange and weird, and it's kind of, like, off-putting to me. But <laughs> then when the story, you know, sort of fleshed her out, you know, it's like, ah, so she's this, you know, damaged person who is internalizing a lot of Vulcan ideology and, you know, and uh, she really portrayed uh, the change in that, like when she first got on board the ship and, you know, then present day uh, Burnham, you know. So I came around to, to really, you know, thinking it was a whale of a performance. And like you said, Kevin, you know, her, her grief scenes were excellent, um, you know, in a way that like Avery Brooks would have just like, you know, digested the scenery. Um, you know, like she really nailed it. Like she nailed human playing Vulcan, but having human peek through and then evolving in the direction of more, you know, human mannerism over seven years. Right. Uh, yeah. And really I will good. say just from like a slightly like stepping back from the specifics, um, she has like this presence, like, um, I remember, um, the Nerdist podcast kept jokingly suggesting Angela Bassett be the captain for the new show way back when it was still in the planning stages. But she has that kind of similar quality for me of just like, I'm like, a, like I'm like stuck watching her face. Like when she's on screen, I don't look away from her. Um, there's, there's that intangible quality to her performance that I'm just like arrested. Uh, I would say that I uh, enjoyed her performance. I enjoyed Michelle Yeoh's performance, but do you know whose performance I really cared about? Mm. Ensign Connor. <laughs> who then suddenly was dead, and I was heart-stricken. Heart-stricken. Yeah, was, I was sad. He was, he was cute. I just, um, they, like, had just been, like, like, you'd seen glimpses of this dude, and then there's, like, the uh, another, like, human dude on the bridge and you're like those are both cute unless they're the same person it's kind of unclear 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 okay but then he gets like hurt then he goes to the he's going to med bay but then he wanders into the bridge because he's disoriented and you're like i want to bang this man now and then he's dead <laughs> then he's dead yeah uh, it was i, I know was... star trek has a history of sucking cute helmsmen out the window because there was that really hunky one in insurrection uh-huh. that was like built like an irish rugby player that they i'm like stop doing that like but then somehow what? tom paris lasted what 87 seasons how i don't know just throw him out an airlock i don't care it doesn't matter I love tom um paris. yeah well 
Um, <laughs> uh, but I, and I will say, I love Michelle Yeoh. I've loved her for ages. Um, I think she was underused here. I like. I liked her aura. She had that kind. She she was a Starfleet captain. No two ways about it. She yeah, had yeah. the presence of a Starfleet captain. I wish she was around more, and I wish they had done more with her. Like I like. I'm going to reserve judgment, obviously, until I see Jason Isaac's actual performance and not whatever they excised for the trailer. Given that we know their trailer people are all on mescaline. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. With um, you. But I like. Like, if nothing else, like, I was just thinking during the trailer, like, wow, this show has passed the Bechdel test, like, literally, with its first set of lines. Um, like, like, if you told me this show were about the two of them and the ship they were well, on together. Yeah. I'd, I'd watch the like, crap out of that show. I watch would. the crap out of that show. Yeah, like, even her ponytail was amazing. Like, you have this, like, perfectly balanced, like, one little, st- one hefty strand over the front of the shoulder, then the rest in the back, like, Everything was flawless, and the, she had this like slightly arch way of speaking that she she kept her accent that I really liked because uh, I, I like any time it's implied that human cultural variations, even if they don't survive literally as they stand today, that they survive at all in some uh-huh. sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure, makes sure, me more sure. invested in the universe because one of the things, and Star Trek's been guilty of this as often as anyone. Anytime they reduce a culture to a planet and a planet to a city for the sake of narrative or geographic. It's like, we have to find this bad guy in this planet. And the way they talk about it is it's like trying to find a bad guy in a major city. Right. right, right. Uh, like, so anytime you can imply to me that, that the cultural variations that humanity has sustained for the last several millennia would survive in some way is interesting. And it belies the underlying fear of the Klingons that the Federation is necessarily a ruthlessly homogenizing force where if even if cultural variations survive inside a species, they uh-huh. would then survive between species. Uh-huh. So like, I, I like the little choices, like, like um, her last name, like her name and the name of the ship and the way she pronounced them. It had that like hint of the, like the tonality of, of uh, Mandarin Chinese that uh, like, I, I like the way she said the name of the ship. I'm like, Ooh, it sounds like you're actually speaking Chinese or it's like, it should come out just a little that way in my ear. Uh-huh. Sure. Like, that's, that's fun for me. That's the, that's the flavor that that's the little detail work that Star Trek is good at and makes me very happy. That's right. So Doug Jones as sorrow, he seemed like the only other actor to really make an impression, which might simply be because he's the only other actor who's going to be in the rest of the series. Yeah. Um, uh, besides the Klingons, besides the Klingons, Klingon alert, besides the Klingons, yeah. but yeah. the Klingons that we'll see more of obviously took second seat to, to Kuvma, whose actor's name is Chris Obi. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's talk about Saru, and then we can talk about the Klingons, but let's not forget about the Klingons. Excuse no, me. There's the question of whether they could register through their helmet heads. Well, <laughs> speak Klingon. <laughs> Um, I, I like um, I, I a lot. Um, I, I thought at points the banter with Burnham got a little like it, it, it verged just at the precipice of somehow slightly unprofessional. Like when they were muscling each other for the panel. I like, uh-huh. like that. I like this is your job. This is your actual job. Like that being said, I, I work with several other very talented lawyers, and we do have that kind of loving banter and mockery because that's how you survive a difficult job. Um, but I'm like, uh, he, he, de- uh, speaking of acting through the makeup, 
Um, he did. Like, oh, yeah. Like, he, he brought to life this kind of nebbishy, sarcastic, little, 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 little gay. I'm going to say it. There, I said it. Um, little like, homo. Little homo. Yeah, just, just a little touch of that, like, like, he's read all his Oscar Wilde. Like, just that, 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 that kind of, like, biting, like, I'll that's make so fun of you in a way that'll make it feel like a hug. Um, that I responded to very, that's very familiar. And it was there, and, and, and he backed it up. Um, the character seemed competent, you know, good at his job. Like, to the extent that he was comic relief, he was, like, like I made this comparison earlier, um, uh, Georgiou, Burnham, and Saru felt like they were hearkening back to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy because the the pacing, the staging, the almost the literal dialogue felt very much like a TOS episode with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy with a you know a captain who balances their emotions and their intellect, surrounded by officers who are just their emotions or just their intellect, and have lovingly sparring repartee with each other. It almost felt yeah, like. Sure. They were doing it on, they, I mean, they couldn't not be doing it on purpose, right? I mean, they, they had to be doing that on purpose. Sure, um, sure. But it, to the extent that Saru is this kind of McCoy stand-in for, like, the slightly, you know, sassy, homespun wisdom type, I liked it. Like, he, yeah, he, he, he was, it was good, it was, it was what comic relief is supposed to be. It relieved the tension of the scene without breaking the narrative that was going on. Um, yeah. And that's something Star Trek is sometimes not done perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, that I, I think that he's one of the characters that I'm most excited to see where it sort of goes. I mean, he's one of the, like, two or three characters that we know is going on. But, like, I'm like, okay, like, well, maybe we can talk about this in a second. But for Burnham, I have trepidation about where her arc is going. For Saru, I have curiosity. And maybe that's the emotion I'm trying to get across to you. Um, just... Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think the one thing I want to add is that some random commenter on my Facebook thread or Facebook page said something like, I want to see him move more. And I think I immediately agreed with that. Like, like he's, he's obviously meant to be like tall and lanky, right? And I think I want to like see him running or see him in a fight, you know, just to see like a little bit more of the physicality of his body. We saw a lot yeah. of his face I but not a lot of his body, just standing right? on a step stool behind uh Sinequa right. Martin Green to look taller but in a way that means he'll never walk on camera yeah I, I get that <laughs> right 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 um Chris yeah. Obi as Takuma he actually was the most effective of the Klingons to me although the, I mean the your Kevin the Prestes just like ridiculous like indeed uh, like do you have a face <laughs> like can you move your mouth? Can you chew things? Like, I don't know. Um, so in part, it might have been the dialogue. In part, it might have been sort of the hulking physicality that Chris Obi brought to it. Like, he, he always seemed very, uh, you know, hunchy, you know, like... Uh, um, but, you know, his performance, such as it was, was part of what made Klingons feel real. Uh, and part of its dialogue, which I was reading, of course. Uh, yeah. Um, I will, there, there was one line for me that transcended the um, subtitles. Um, it's when um, Georgiou is speaking 
on the hologram, and I'll get to the holograms in a second. Um, but she says uh, she's like trying to set up the peace talks, and he says right before she says it, it here it comes. Like wh- yeah, when he says that, I heard it as if I didn't read it, and I and I think it was like maybe Wait, it was say, sorry. Before. Say this. Which line again? Are you, you my audio cut out. Which line? Uh, here comes the lie. Right, right before she says we come in peace again, because it obviously calls back to the teaser. Uh, when she said that, I like registered that line like I heard him say it, not like I read that he said it. And yeah, I just yeah. that 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 was like a really well done line. And maybe that was just the editing, because it was like just this little slip in insult. And 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 it serves the story so well because it yeah, yeah, yeah. because it calls back to like the central thesis of this guy and his issue. But that was like one of those moments where I forgot I was reading subtitles right. for that line, and I really enjoyed that moment. He must have said "Rostach Pechme" or something like that. I don't know what the exact line was, but that's how you'd say the secret is coming. Oh, that's secret, not lie. Hmm, I don't know how to say lie. There, <laughs> I've, I've officially messed up a Klingon statement here here on on this podcast. Good. You've dishonored yourself. Everybody gets one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also note he um had the very most. You talked about Shakespearean acting a little bit ago. He and he definitely had the most kind of um stilted speech. He spoke in a very deliberate way, and I think that was intentional and about him being this charismatic orator. He spoke very um, – even his kind of like rhythm was weird, um, as a, and I mean in terms of speak, speaking and understanding Klingon. His rhythm was weird. He was, he was sort of um, kind of speaking on the downbeat. That's not really a technical term, but uh, you, know, you get the sense of what I mean. Yeah, well, and I it was just sort of, like, well, and the sense of repetition a lot, like, and I don't know if that was a writing choice, but – he kept uh, like on West Wing and Aaron Sorkin. They call it, like the rule of threes. Whatever he said, he repeated three times yeah, in some yeah. slight variation. Like I, I caught that, and I caught it in the Klingon. Like the I heard the same Klingon dialogue yeah, three times, yeah. and that's, so I and knew that's, it wasn't gibberish. Yes, exactly. And so it's. I think it's. I think it's both that. He, he well, it's not both. It's that he was presenting himself as this orator, right? Whereas other people are just like talking, or they're just talking. I mean, they're talking him in this kind of heightened situation. But the people, the Klingons on the um, on the holograms, the the um, you know, when the other when Voke and Orek and Laurel are speaking on the ship, and other Klingons are speaking on the ship, they're just kind of talking. But he's like presenting, and you can tell in his speech. Um, I'm. That observation doesn't add a lot to what you just said. I'm just trying to point out that that was clear as someone who can who knows the difference between weird Klingon and good Klingon, and that he was speaking totally reasonable Klingon. But I could tell that he had was really slowed down and was really deliberate. In and, that. and that came off even without knowing yeah. the Klingon. Like it was clear he was spitting out the word. Like he yeah. he was like practically had his hands on his hips and was thrusting his pelvis forward while he uh-huh. stood and talked uh-huh. to. Like it was very. Um, Shakespeare's not who I'm looking for, but like, like almost like um, Greek tragedy or something, uh-huh, like this like uh-huh. heroic figure where like organic dialogue was not the goal necessarily. Right, 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 right. Um, um, all right. Well, so does that cover acting? Uh, no one was bad. I think it's fair. Yeah. yeah. No, there was no one. Where I was like, oh god. Uh, oh, there, oh, no, oh, <laughs> there was. There was not a single instant of pain or loneliness. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, I did think that Sarek's actor, to go back a little bit to Sarek vis-a-vis acting, I thought he kind of smiled a little too much. 
He was a little smarmy. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah like I just and, and again, I'm trying not to like over penalize someone for not being Mark Lennard because Mark Lennard is dead, and I'll come to peace with that eventually. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard. It, it's just like you picked a character who's like over two series and four movies is one actor. It's not even like it was multiple actors over the course of that where he could be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Mark, right, Mark this Snart, wasn't a Time Lord problem. She just defines that character so because he was so good at it. Like, like I've literally used the line about Sarika Vulcan not turning away from something he didn't wish to see when having an argument with someone about something they don't want to think about. Like, it's just, it's so good. And it's just like, so, like, I get you have to make an action choice to either be like him or not care that you're not like him, but it, it just, it read weird, and I'm yeah. uh, Going back to writing for a moment, what did we think about that weird mind-meld phone call? That annoyed I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Why did that annoy you? That was great. What was wrong with I that? Hate it. I hate it when it's they magic. add powers to that the was not adding powers. that they've never revealed before. across space before. They haven't done the, like, we're going to have this conf- this full-body conference call. They haven't done that with the special effects before, sure. But there have been messages, feelings cast across space. Yeah, but really? there's never been a Contra oh. Skype call, basically. Oh, I'm like... I don't think I yeah. can pull the citation for you, but I get this feeling that that has happened before. I'm thinking about... Um, uh, the Spock and Picard um, relationship. Well, no, because C- Picard carried some piece of Sarek's personality as a result of the mind meld, he was offering this kind of copy of a copy experience, but it wasn't like Sarek could have phoned Picard from his deathbed to be like, tell Spock I love him. Also, here's what I had for lunch today. Like, it's just like, there was a like they have never implied that a mind meld allows for interstellar real time communication decades after the mind meld. That is a lot of add on. They do the same thing with the trill in DS9, where when when Esri like magically makes a manifestation of one of her previous hosts that only she can see and hear can help her solve crime. It's like don't over freight your alien power because it makes it more annoying. Because like when all the mind meld can do is give you a bonded personality for the duration of the mind melt that's fun and narratively interesting when it suddenly becomes capable of like curing disease as it did in voyager several times and like um it's just there, there, anytime you add one more thing the mind melt can do you get the mind melt farther away from a real thing and more to a narrative crutch yeah and that's why it annoyed me but it didn't pull me out of the episode so much okay okay moving on um, I thought it was sweet. I thought it was sweet ma- space magic, and I loved it. Uh, <laughs> Kelly, who also watched it, mentioned to me that she found the visuals uh, kind of too busy. Um, like, it all looked really good, but it was kind of, like, too good. And you sort of didn't know where to put your eye on the screen. Uh-huh. And I agree with that. Uh, like, I, I... whenever there was an HUD on the screen, I was just like, Jesus, fuck. Get that thing off the screen so I'm not trying to read, like, every little thing. Like, I'm trying to follow the story, you know? Uh-huh. I don't want to see, like, what temperature Celsius, you know, the thing is. It's just, like, yeah, um, the money is showing. I, Thank you. You're using a lot of I, money I, to make this show. But that's not what's important to me, right? I would say I, I agree kind of with that point. As busy as it was, I thought there was more art and cinematography on display than than the Abrams movies, even in the set piece battles. Like um 
the scene with um, Burnham in the in the EV suit or um, some of the early some of the first part of the battles like the camera was far enough back and didn't jump for a long enough period of time for me to have a sense of what was happening. The only time I really lost that was during the height of the battle. But that almost feels like narratively serving the story like this is the literal fog of war like you know you there are 24 ships on their side and the dozen or so on yours flinging about like I shouldn't actually know exactly what's going on and I got nowhere near the nausea I did like it felt much closer to like some of the set piece battles from the Dominion War which I really liked yeah um, I, I agree that there was some a of the, shaky cam what, you know that was good. yeah yeah um my only problem with the production uh, two problems problem 1a the Klingon ships again hyper over designed like I can't tell you what they looked like and that might be because the color scheme of the ship was very close to the color scheme of the background. And that was somewhat hard. Like, I, I personally love, like, the Vorcha Cruiser and the Bird of Prey. I'm not asking for the same things. But I will say, and this, is, this relates to my problem 1B, there is no way, just literally no way, that in 15 years' time we get from whatever we saw last night on Discovery to TOS. Certainly no way you get from whatever Klingon ships were on display on the screen at the Battle of the Binary Stars to the D7s we see in the original series, which rela- which is which kind of loops back to my production problem of why the hell it's a prequel. If you just told me that the aftermath of the Dominion War was a destabilization of the Klingon Empire that caused them to withdraw from interstellar politics for about 50 to 60 years, and you told me this takes place 80 years after next after next generation instead of before not only would those visuals have been fine i would have said okay they've moved on to way more energetic touchscreens that feel less boopy i'm i'm there for that because i have that on my phone like the the real problem with doing a prequel is that more history has happened than Star Trek accounted for when the narrative started. There, it, we were long past the 90s, and there was no eugenics war, so it's not like Star Trek history was completely accurate. So sticking your narrative back in that time just doesn't work. It just, it just, It's like Enterprise actually did a faithful enough job of presenting a production scheme that made me feel like, oh, this kind of looks like the space shuttles today. It's a lot of switches and a lot of knobs. And it feels like it could get to TOS. There's simply no way the bridge of the Shenzhou predates the constitution class enterprise. There is no through line. And I'm not saying there literally has to be, but there's not yes, even like you a are. That's exactly no. what you're saying. Don't backtrack on this. Come on. Well, I'm saying I can you want to evolve into the visual identity of the original enterprise or you don't. I just and I guess I say Kevin. that because I just have, like, no problem with what you're putting out there. I just have, like, no concern about it. Kevin. And many people are concerned about it, but I just – it just, like, runs off my back. It's – like, one question I ask is, why does everyone assume that, like – well, let me phrase it like this. Could they make – could they do – a redo of the original series and update the technology. I think they could. Would that be weird? Yeah, it'd be weird. But like, I don't, you know, I don't think that Star, the, you guys talk a lot about the true and real holy Star Trek, right? I don't think the real and true holy Star Trek is bell-bottom jeans. 
which is well, really no, what, what I'm you're saying is about. even if I accept the design, like I understand the show was what it was because of when it was and the budget they had. That being said, the Blu-ray remasters look really good. I actually think they look pretty stunning. Um, my problem is more even beyond the visual tone, the practical life, like those holographic projectors are being hinted at as the bleeding edge of communications technology in DS9. Like they're, they're doing like, like they're talking about how the Romulan war was conducted by subspace radio with no visual communication. That's how we didn't know the Romulans were Vulcans in TOS. Like there, there's a line between, I understand you do it again 150 years later, it's going to look different because it looks better, and my, the phone I am speaking on has better technology than the Enterprises portrayed in the original series. I appreciate that. The problem is that ship is not just visually completely unconnectable to the visual aesthetic of the original series. It is also light years ahead of the technology portrayed as available to the Federation, in the, in the original series. And what bothers me about that is, is you want to set it as a prequel because you want to borrow the care I have for those stories to make me care about your story while simultaneously telling me I don't have to care that much about those stories when we choose to violate them. And honest, and I've read enough comic books. I'm a big enough nerd. I can handle a reboot that's done well. Had, had they said, this is a completely new Star Trek universe, it has many of the same elements that we will tell you about when we feel like it, but it is otherwise narratively unconnected to the shows you used to watch. I would have said fine, because that would have at least had a certain intellectual honesty. My, cons- my problem is you don't get to have your cake and eat it, too. You cannot tell me it's a prequel, so it is in the stories you care about, but we don't care enough about the narrative integrity of those stories to not shred them at will. You can't have it both ways. Kevin, let me so just what do you, say, what, can I say two things? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, number one, this <laughs> these ships don't just predate the TOS Enterprise. They're actually contemporary with TOS Enterprise because Captain... Oh, right, Ray, because Robert April and Chris Pike, you guys stand corrected. ...are already out there doing their thing on the TOS Enterprise. Uh, number two, I think it just raises the question of why you do it. And, John, you've mentioned, you know... The reason to do it is because you're creating a connection for the fan base. Okay. But when you make that choice, you just open yourself to all these sorts of irritations and questions. And I just have to wonder if it, like, they're not calling it the Enterprise, you know, they're making it a new ship, they're making it a new set of stories, you know, so just why not just push it further away so that no one ever has to care that things. Um, but if if you told me this very episode, the very episode I just watched, took place eighty years after TNG, I would have said, "Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Yeah, works for me. I'm completely on board with that. They're, they're, it's not even like I would need to wrap, like to alter something in my head. The technology looks more advanced. The interfaces look more advanced. The politics are." distant enough that like i understand the whole problem with the reboots the reason for the reboot was after five series and 50 years of storytelling continuity had become so top heavy as to preclude new storytelling i get it because no matter what story you told it was going to run afoul some other piece of continuity great so then just do it give yourself the freedom to tell any damn story you want instead they kept going back to let's slot this into right in between these stories like why are you doing that you're just inviting 
know, nerd yeah. irritation. I am not. I am not being a pedant and being like, oh well, you did. I am thinking these things that you didn't intend. No, you explicitly told me to think about them. You said this takes place in the universe at the time of this other show. You've told me they are the same story, so you've invited the comparison between those two stories. And even if I rounded up for a modern day portrayal of the original series with modern production values. They're qualitatively different ships, like of a different class and capacity of ship, of a different feel. Like the, the Shenzhou's bridge is an amphitheater. I could have staged, speaking of Shakespeare, I could have staged Hamlet on that bridge the entire episode and no one would have known. And that's fine. It looked, it, it looked good. It did not look like an Apple store, which is another thing it has over the Abrams verse. The original series bridge is pretty claustrophobic. It, impl- it, it like on a, I believe, a purposeful level. Like these ships are, if not bare bones, they're not luxurious. Like the whole, the, the whole point of TNG is to draw a comparison and contrast to the austerity of the original series to the luxury liner that is the Galaxy Cluster. Like the, the original sets of Star Trek series tell a contiguous story on purpose, and if you want to shoehorn yourself in then you have to live with the places that that shoehorning doesn't mesh. Well, and one of them is to say that you couldn't, it's like, no, you couldn't do it on the POS sets. All we have to do is point you to the defiant story on enterprise four in which they literally recreated the TOS enterprise sets. And it looked fucking amazing. It was great. It was wonderful. And I defy anybody to watch those two episodes and be like, oh, that looks so hokey, I can't watch that. You know? Well, it looks great. So, yeah, I, it's just, my question is just why? Why? Why, why do it? Other? Because be, I guess is it that you don't trust us to, <coughs> excuse me, it's like you don't trust us to go along if you said this takes place 100 years in Star Trek's future. We're Trekkies. We'll go, we'll, we're fine. We'll be thrilled. We would have brought uh, see so that's a, it's interesting you say that because another reason that they're doing all this is because they're trying to get not they're trying to speak to the mythical non drecky right? Which but I want to go. But it's never going to happen. Oh come on! It I'm, happened with the Abrams movies. It happens all the time. But so if it, if, um, it makes, if you make a good story, people will watch it. They watch Mad Men. They, they watch the bad the- stories. I'm saying if you make it, we are living in the golden age of television. You can have complicated stories and complicated people and tell bizarro things and people will go along. They just redid Twin Peaks, for God's sake. Like, if you make something of quality that you care about, people will go along. The problem is we are past a point at which there is such a thing as television that literally everyone watches. Numbers, like, unless you're Big Bang Theory, the numbers of any popular TV show would have gotten a show canceled in the age of Friends. Like, we're just not at that point anymore. There's no show that draws 11 million viewers every week, and that's fine. It means that TV is not homogenous and made to a tepid middle ground. I'm thrilled with the idea that there is TV made for the people who care about making it. Like, this is why I think it should have been a Netflix series from the start. Like, like the, the, the Castlevania animated series, for God's sake, was amazing. Like just, I just agree with you. I like, agree with you about that, by the yeah, way. Just, it was yeah, yeah. just make something good and people will watch it, or they won't. And But enough Trekkies will watch it to make it worth your money. There's, like, I'll put it this way. No non-Trekkie cares that it was placed 15 years before the original series because when you try to explain that to them, their eyes glass over. 
Yeah, I agree with that. So you said earlier, this is going back a little bit, but you, um, I, I, I accused you. I said something about bell bottoms, and I think I want to point out that I think you did something very convincing, which I hadn't heard anybody else do yet, about talking about it's not the look, which is what people have been concerned about, but it's the abilities that are different and change the sort of makeup of it, and that makes a lot of sense to me. However, a lot of Trek canon and a lot of Trek, you know. Is it science or whatever? Is based on little tiny throwaway phrases. In the beginning of this conversation, you guys were talking about, you know, oh, the light beacon of the of the torch. Does it can it go faster than light speed? And you said, well, maybe there's this one little throwaway line. So there's a one little throwaway line that I want to throw into the um, statement you just made, which is that they do talk about now. Obviously, in ways, this is full of shit, but they do talk about when Burnham arrives on the ship for the first time in the best part of the entire series, or the entire show, which is her cool dress, uh, Vulcan <laughs> outfit, it's second best piece, right now, second best piece. She second best piece of it. She comes on and she's like, "Wow, your transporters suck!" And they're like, "Oh yeah, it's an old ship. Like it's an old design of these uh, things." Now, of course, that makes very little sense based on all the things you've said later, but they do. They do deal with it in the way that you, you know, we, you have trained them to deal with it, which is by patching it over with the line. Yeah, but that almost works in the reverse. You're saying the ship that was old at the time that TOS premiered was somehow more advanced. That would require a backslide of both resources and available technology. I mean, also, let me just throw out there part of my annoyances. I hate, hate with the heat of a Nova holographic technology i have hated it since star wars when i was eight because every time they portray it in order to portray that it is a hologram and not confuse the poor audience that it is an actor in the room they give it this like janky lag it is so annoying who would voluntarily continue to use a communication technology that defining feature is it static it drives me Nuts. The reason video phones have not caught on in the real world is because video phone technology has always been terrible. You only use it when you have to, when you are living abroad and trying to maintain a pair bond. Other than that, verbal or text communication has such higher fidelity that it is universally acknowledged as the superior form of communications. It drives me up a wall. Can you imagine trying to talk to someone who is statically jumping in place? It would drive I find it to be the bleeding edge of this. It's the future, and it will have this. And it's just either make it work in a way that's convincing, or don't use it. It annoys the hell out of me. It just, I don't. It just. Oof. Sorry. Sorry. I just. I. No. The, I, ad, it, the it, admiral shit. You're yeah. like, why is he on the bridge? Is he walking around on a bridge that's, like, identically proportioned, and that's why... Right, it was the same problem oh, yeah. we had in DS9 when they used it. It's like, what is this for? Right, How right. does this work? What during the uh, during when Sarek is talking, not via mind melt, but via um, <laughs> teleportation, he goes and, like, leans on her desk, and I had that a little bit of coming out of it being like, is he, like, on a stage somewhere? That like has a desk there, and that's how he's sitting. Like, if it, I had that moment, so I'm down with you. I was laughing a minute ago because uh, you're praising voice technology 
during this conversation where I've had lots of audio lag. I'm agree, I agree with your point that the juxtaposition was just funny to me. Hopefully our future podcasts will be <laughs> normal. Normally we have much better fidelity because I'm using a hardwired microphone uh-huh, on my uh-huh. computer with a hardwired internet connection, but you know, needs must when you've been sent abroad by your job. Let's, um, let's sum it up. Um, you know, so normally we rate things on a scale of one to five, with five being, you know, transcendently good, three being perfectly mediocre, good, solid Star Trek, and one being, you know, it's like this is horrible and I hate it. Mm, so this is a start. Is it Star Trek rating? Not a. Is uh, it good? It's rating? A, uh, it's it's kind of a melange of those, and I will add the caveat: we 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 are not Yelp. A three is not a bad review. Yes, the majority of Star Trek. Yeah, uh, uh, by definition, almost the average Star Trek episode should be a three. Um, so it's not like it's not like they're all fives or they're terrible. It's a workaday, competent. What would, what would be a classic example of a three in Next Gen? Um, I don't know. Angel One. No, that's, that, that was a, <laughs> yeah, a no, um, but like middle of the road. I'm trying to think of something from like season three. Uh, I can't look at my phone because I'm on it. But like, um, you know, uh, the loss or the price or you know a good like a you know a good Troy episode where no where nothing stupid happens or you know um, they visit a planet and everything's fine. Um, where it's like you know there's nothing that makes it like jaw-dropping television for the ages, but there's nothing bad about it. So that's the three. I, For me, I think the first half is a four, the second half is a three. I, I think the first half did a really good job of setting up a lot of the world in a way that made me happy, thrilled even. And the second half was a competent episode that was a little heavy on the action and a little summary in its dialogue. Like, like a lot of stuff was just like, that's what we're doing. Um, so I would say the first half is a four, the second half is a three, so a total lot of a seven out of ten for me for the for the two parts separately and together. Um I would I would say they're both fours actually. I was consistently engaged throughout mm. the production values were you know, if a little busy, quite good. Thing on choices notwithstanding. Um you know, and the acting was above average so i think it was solidly above average all the way through and i really liked where uh burnham's you know i i had less trepidation than i guess you did john about you know where her arc is going i like my only concern is that they sent her to life in prison she didn't kill anyone i mean this is a pretty rough like five years ten years come on she's a human she's not a vulcan it's like life life i mean apparently apparently prison sentences are a little harsher Ten, ten well, and, and she did, you know, mutiny a ship. Yeah, but I'm just saying, it's not like she, it's not like she gunned down someone over a drug deal that went bad. I'm saying uh, there are mitigating yeah, factors. Just, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't find that so strange. It, um, it's I, a federation to me. The, the federation's whole raison d'etre is is cultural relativism and understanding the context and being like, well, there were reasons and those reasons are valid to you and therefore we must give them at least some cursory examination and wait. And I'm just, life seemed extreme to me. It, it doesn't it seem to fit straight. the sort of well, sweet, and it was... Sweden in space, you know, impression. <laughs> that well, and that, that strange... Um, 
the courtroom scene was so weird that the Federation people were blacked out yes. um, in silhouette. So that is a good segue for my I'll, – I'll give it a rating, and then I'll tell you about my trepidation. I think this is a good thing for at least me to, me to end on. So I think I'm going to go um, the route of one of you. Kevin, I'm going to go Kevin's route and give a different rating to each one. I think that I would give the first one a three or four, and I would give the second part a three or a two. So maybe I'll give a four or two. Okay. I li- really like the first part. It really, like, it gave me the, the like, I'm watching Star Trek now. It gave the sort of, like, um, you know, Captain Philippa. She was... You know the the sort of contrast there, the the McCoy Spock Kirk dynamic that I think you accurately pinpointed, although I wouldn't have said it at the time. Uh, dynamic was going, and then my trepidation is, and maybe my trepidation for what is to come is shadowing over my thoughts about the actual second half of what we've actually seen. But okay, um, my trepidation is that. So the showrunners have talked about a second pilot. That really, we've seen the first pilot, and there will be a second pilot. Why is that? Because we actually haven't been on the Discovery yet. We don't actually know the crew of the Discovery yet. We know probably two major characters on the Discovery, because I'm assuming Saru shows up there, too. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's basically confirmed in the like preview. Yeah. And so I'm a little worried that what we saw was... A Star Trek show blow up along with the Shenzhou and a new, darker, grittier oh, Star Trek uh, yeah. universe sort of starting up now. And I and point, because and you, you've you, you, you've completely encapsulated my ongoing concern is that given that it says this story, like in the opening credits, it says story by Brian Fuller. I'm worried that all of the things I liked about this version of Star Trek are, the, are left when he did. Yeah, last night when I was being cynical about my reaction, I was like, I, did we see the execution of Star Trek at the altar of <laughs> The Walking Dead, right? Is that what just happened? And I think the, the courtroom scene really points to that in the context of the show, in what we've seen, the courtroom scene where it gets so grimdark, right? And then, um, I don't know if you watched the sort of like After Trek special thing or if that was available to you. It was Take It or Leave It. I have not watched it yet, but I tend to have a kind of philosophical annoyance at structure talking about, like, I understand that what we're doing here is structure talking about a show after a show, Uh but (laughs) making it like officially licensed to be consumed immediately following feels cheap somehow. It's a... I don't have concerns about it on that angle, but what I am concerned about is that they, at the very end of that show, they showed a preview of the next episode, and the preview of the next episode is um, they show, you know, they hand wave the she gets out of life on prison because she's somehow now on the Discovery. How exactly that happens is not really clear, but she's now on the Discovery, and they have this scene where she goes into engineering. There are several kind of workstations set up. And there's this kind of like classroom bullying scene where she like goes to a terminal and some person's like, oh, that terminal's taken. And so she goes to the next terminal and she's like, oh, we have assigned terminals. But it's all obviously very clearly them just not wanting to hang out with the mutineer, right? Very high school. But the background of the, the ship and uh, of engineering is just dark, 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 dark. They're just like in a shadowy room. And then um, Rent Guy, whose name I don't know, but the guy who's in Rent. 
Yeah, he shows up and he's like the head engineer and he just scowls at her and just like looks daggers at her and he says something really condescending to her. Meanwhile, like the, the whole tone of engineering is just dark, 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 dark. And I'm like, if this is what we're going to get when we get on this discovery, unless it like really turns around fast to be like, OK, maybe there's this episode of it being dark. But then we have a Star Trek show. Uh, I'm going to be I, to hooned out episode four if it's just like the grim darkening dark grimmening right oh and when God. they said I'm that word so that is, about that. yeah because that word the grim word is so much a like term of art and that means uh in my in in my brain the 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 paragon of this is uh the walking dead which is i believe what one of the showrunners worked on right um kirkman, when, kirkman? uh Seneca martin green was on it if memory oh says. oh i don't I, uh, I watched the first season and took i watched stuff. the first yeah yeah i'm there but i she, i read she was on it and the review i read of the episode was like the criminally underserved on walking dead Seneca martin green is on this show and so it's like oh okay yeah, yeah, and so and so just to sum up what I'm saying, like that so often me. Well, okay, what they said sort of in some of the after track stuff, it, or maybe on an interview I was watching, I don't know. But the the showrunners were saying, you know, we wanted the show, the tone of the show to reflect politics right now. So it's not this like shiny bright thing. Instead, it's going to be like darker and grimmer and tell these more human stories. And I was like, fuck that noise. The fuck are you talking about? The whole point. That's this like outdated escapist argument about how Star Trek is like unmoored in the realities of its political time, which is nonsense, right? Right. The whole, the whole point of the, the original series was to tell a positive story. Right. And so Nicole they're just Moore. and they're just rejecting that legacy and the whole point of that is have to say, quote, like more human stories. And the the showrunner even said something like, well aren't all real true human stories like like grim and dark dirty stories? And I was like, no. Have you watched Anything? Have you read a book? Like, no, what are you talking about? No, you're wrong. And so, ending... Now, I realize that this is not actually technically in the episodes that we talked about, but as the sort of, like, after-dinner wine, the after-dinner cappuccino that they served to us after this show, and they were like, did you like that? Well, imagine it dunked in a bottle of oil. You know, it was just like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, if it had ended... A little bit earlier, and that'd have been it. I think I would have been like firmly, yeah. let's go. But the like yeah. Star Trek: The Grim Darkening, I'm just not excited I mean, about. The the only thing I'll say to that, and this is just me trying to make myself feel better, is um I one of the things I liked about Deep Space Nine was that I thought it was this kind of not a darkening. I think that's a little two dimensional of an analysis, but I think like. Deep Space Nine stretches Star Trek's ethos. It says what uh-huh. happens when it clashes with people who don't share that view. What happens if you really imperil the safety of the Federation? Like, how does, like, you know, like two of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine were Paradise Lost at Homefront when the Changelings were on Earth, because that was a fun and eerily prescient um allegory for the hyper-paranoid security state that happens in a time of war. But the whole reason Deep Space Nine worked for me was the core characters never lost their Federation idealism, even if it got dinged. That was the whole point. It was watching them process their idealism through this real world uh-huh. much or this uh-huh. darker world experience. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. if they can land if they can land that, I will enjoy that as much as I enjoy Deep Space Nine. But if they think that, you know, 
zombies eating children is really is an allegory for Trump or something, and that makes it dark and interesting. Like that's the thing. Like you summed it up great. Have they read a book? Like there's a going back to like Star Trek more broadly. There's a literacy and a thoughtfulness and a curiosity that infuses all of Star Trek, even at its worst, even at its weakest. It's uh, just the, the the scripts that got off someone's desk and never should have. All of those qualities were what drew me to the show. Like there, there are people who like thought information was good for itself, that being curious about the world and well-informed were things you should be by default. So it's like, I don't want to work. Like, I don't need to watch a TV show about a grim dark, like I have Battlestar Galacta for that, or I have reality for yeah, that. I, there. I want to watch yeah. someplace that I want to. Not some place that I have to live. Yeah, I want. Like I know no show will be TNG, but you can give me something like its cousin, right? Right, right, right. And we can explore models for how it could be better. We can have goals for how it could be better. We can have exemplars and paradigms and all these things for how it could be better and how these things can be resolved or or tough working on how it will be resolved as opposed to just like. Here's a here's a show. We're grinding you in the dirt now. Okay. Well, I'm. I'll say this: that uh, I am intrigued enough by this to keep watching, and I am allowing myself to continue to experience this completely unexpected and long dormant sensation of being excited at the thought of watching new Star Trek. That is there not something go. felt in about. 15 years um and it's like meeting it's 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 like when picard meets captain louvois also named philippa uh in in measure of a man when it's like oh i used to date you it ended badly but it was fun you know <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah yeah sure sure wow okay so that's uh so for for the ratings that go into our statistical analyses that is a eight out of ten and a seven out of ten uh, for the first two episodes of Discovery, which is pretty good because I believe um, Enterprise was like a eight for Encounter Farpoint and a six, six or seven for Naked Now, and Deep Space Nine went right off a cliff in its early first season. So far, Storyteller hasn't happened yet, so points to Discovery. Um, well, I think it's stunning enough here based to on... make me cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I think it's stunning based on the difference between expectation and result. I mean, uh-huh. I was expecting fully to think it was just as shitty as the three Abrams movies. And it's not. Yep, yep. It is decidedly not. You know, I agree with you. Which is, I mean, it's like the best news of the year so far. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, uh, both of you. Uh, I'm excited to watch Star Trek. I, I agree with the, the trepidation because, you know, it's happened to so much good stuff. You know, people are like, oh, well, how can we really make this dark? You know, it's like Zack Snyder's DC movie. Like, yeah, 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 yes. Superman's yes, not a good supposed example. to be dark. Superman's supposed to be light and good and truth and justice. You know, it's like, that's what it's supposed to be. Not like, oh, I'm so mad at you, Zod, I'm going to break your neck. Like, no, you don't have to make it into a murder, right? <laughs> you can have it be fun. Uh, so I hope it keeps going that way. I got that feeling from this, you know, and I want to keep feeling that feeling. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm shocked, I guess is the way to put it. 
Yeah, no, it was great. Like even the even through the opening credits, which we, uh, we didn't really talk about, Matt. We talked about a little like you didn't you weren't a big fan. I actually kind of really liked them. Like but, like watching that opening sequence through the opening credits, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is. I'm feeling like this 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 like warmth. What is this? This is unfamiliar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I found it. I found it to be hoping for that in a way that was unseemly to me. Like it was just sort of like a. A greatest hits of Star Trek designs, something yeah, yeah, yeah. like exploding blueprints, and that that to me doesn't tell me anything about the the theme or you know the like what I'm supposed to take from what I'm watching. It's just like oh phasers, I like phasers, you know. Uh-huh. So I, I thought the creation of man with the EV gloves was like the peak of like uh, I'm drawing the line here. Yeah, Go was, no further in here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like I'll yeah, let you have that. Retro. But that's it. That's where my forbearance ends. <laughs> sure, sure. I would say that I didn't. I didn't mind it, but I didn't love it. I want. Uh, I think the best shot in all of Star Trek. I'm gonna tell you right now, the best shot is the very opening of early seasons of Deep Space Nine, where the camera pans through the comet's tail and then turns around, and then there's this long pause while it slowly moves, and then way down in the distance, you see Deep Space Nine emerge. And that, to me, so encapsulates the whole feeling. Like, the feeling I want is that feeling. They later ruin it by having a shuttlecraft zoom through the shot, which is terrible. Well, and um, then by adding, like, a bossa nova beat. Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what I want, and I want—I just love the like the seeing the ships move through space, and that's what I wanted, and it's not what I got. However, I didn't—I didn't hate it. I didn't hate um, it. Someone, someone I was watching with was like, "Oh, this is like Westworld," and I think that's imperfectly true. That it was. Have yeah, you guys seen, have oh, you seen Westworld? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That they, someone was like, "Hey, Westworld had a really cool opening. Let's do that, but with Star Trek," and that's what they did. Yeah, I and I liked Westworld. Don't get me wrong. Uh, if I have issues with like Westworld. I enjoyed Westworld, but we can't start on Westworld because it's 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 late. Um, but yeah, I get what you. I, I agree. Fashionable, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Fashionable yeah. title sequence. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's hey, let's be optimistic. Maybe the world will end before next week, and we'll just we'll just die with this sense of perpetual optimism that will never be shattered. Oh no, we have to say if Ensign Connor survived. We can't stop the show <laughs> until then. Come on. Do we you saw really him... think you survived do you really think you survived explosive decompression? Do you think Do I really like... do I really think that? No. Do I think Star Trek's think characters that? have survived worse? Yes I do. Maybe well, look at this way. Not if he's... saved him remotely. If oh. he's if he well think of it think of it this way. If he's not on Star Trek anymore, that means he's freed up to do some like art house indie film where I don't, he plays. I don't I want Ensign Connor. Maybe he's on Grinder and... now. And if he only lives in the fan fiction, which I'm sure he will, <laughs> then that's fine. Then that's fine. We can have a whole life. If if all we get out of Star Trek Discovery is... Ensign Connor slash fic. Well, that, but even, even just like really intriguing fanfic about the seven years of that Burnham and Captain... Uh, Georgiou? No, if that's the fan fiction, it will be beautiful and amazing, and I will read every word of it, and that will be great. And that Connor's there, and that he a... and Saru are just banging all the time. That is a beautiful note to end the podcast on. I think I, I could not have asked 
for a more perfect coda for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, long and prosperous, right. everybody. We'll be back for our next review. Um, uh, so uh, I think we're, we're, we're still working on season five of Voyager, and I think we're going to keep peppering those in. That's, that's the current plan, but plans change. Life is complicated. Yeah. Um, and uh, folks, you can find me. My name is John Harness. I'm on Twitter at art at cartwheel, C-A-R-T-W-E-E-L. Notice there's no H. Um, and I talk about role-playing games and other nerdy things like that. Um, also, this coming year is the 25th grand meeting of the Klingon Language Institute, which is going to happen in July, I believe, over the weekend of the 25th in Indianapolis, Indiana. And it will possibly be the largest gathering of Klingon speakers in the world so come check it out learn Klingon with me oh and uh, other news that will be relevant to your speakers so there is currently a learn Klingon online course on KLI.org the website of the Klingon Language Institute you can take that right now as we are recording and also you may have heard that Duolingo is coming out with a a long-awaited Klingon course and I have info that the course has been designed and the designers are just waiting for Duolingo, the corporation, to flip the switch. So be on the lookout. It should be soon. Well, a lot of developments in the Klingon world. What he said. All right. All right. All right, then we'll see you next time. Have a good night, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Great talking to you. See you later. All right.